You're now listening to episode 106 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Tom Costelli joined here today with Ellie Perlman. Ellie is founder and CEO of Blue Lake Capital, a real estate investment firm specializing in multifamily value-add investments. In today's episode, we discuss how Ellie approaches multifamily value-add in the COVID-19 era, including underwriting, asset management, and a multifamily value-add strategy called Rehab On Demand. Hey everyone, we want to let you know about a new podcast we're releasing today called The Staying Power Podcast. This is a podcast that will explore the challenges business owners face as they grow. Together, Brandon Hall and I ask the tough questions to show you that running a business is not for the faint at heart, but if you have the staying power, you'll overcome your challenges and achieve lasting success. Subscribe to the Staying Power Podcast today on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts can be found. We hope you'll love this new podcast just as much as the Real Estate CPA Podcast. However, for right now, we'll jump right into today's episode. Hi, Ellie. Thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on the current work you do at Blue A Capital? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to be here today. So Blue Lake Capital is a company that I founded after I got out of MIT business school. And what we do basically is very simple. We buy multifamily properties across the United States, especially in Texas, Florida, and Georgia. These are the markets that we really like. And our business line is very simple. We find the deals, we sign on the loan, we bring investors with us to basically put the down payment. And then once we get the, you know, the property under contract, when we close the deal, then we renovate the units, we improve the property valuation, and then we sell it after three to five years. Nice, nice. So there's a lot that goes into all of that and putting all of that together. So I'm sure you just didn't wake up one day and say, hey, look, I'm going to start Blue Lake Capital. <laughs> so would you be able to just tell us a little bit about your personal journey and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So I was actually born to a very poor family back in Israel. And you know, I saw people around me that were successful, not that I knew them in person, but the one common denominator to all of them were that they were in real estate. And I said, okay, real estate is the way, but you know, back then I thought that I actually needed a lot of money to buy properties, which is, you know, misconception. And I didn't know how to, you know, make a living and get out of that kind of cycle that I was in. My dad was unemployed for many years and my mom was very sick. And I kind of took the the role of the um, caregiver in the family. I have two sisters and one little brother. And throughout all that, I understood, okay, I have to make a life for myself. I cannot have my future kids live the life that I'm living. And because I didn't have money and I thought I needed money, I did have my brain and I thought, okay, this comes you know, for free. And education for me was the way out. So I worked really hard to get into law school and 
after I graduated, I basically started working, you know, I was looking for a law firm in Israel that specialized in real estate because I knew I wanted to be around real estate. And that's what happened. I worked on really, really interesting deals in Europe and it was multifamily, office, all kinds of, you know, retail, really interesting deals. And after a few years, I said, okay, I understand the legal aspects of it, but I want to take a more active role in real estate because that's more exciting. And I transitioned to property management. And after four years, I basically said, okay, now it's time after I know the legal aspects of real estate, I know how to operate properties. I want to learn the business side of real estate. I want to learn how to read financial reports and how to improve operations. And I basically moved to the States. That was about six years ago. I went to MIT and I got my MBA degree. And not long after graduation, I basically started Blue Lake Capital and, you know, never looked back. So what are some of the things that you do to improve operations? Because you, you were just kind of going through all of that. And you said one of the things you wanted to learn more about is improving yeah. the operations. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the big thing that I learned at MIT is how to operate a lean business. You don't really need a lot of people to operate a business, even if you have a big portfolio. And there's a really, really interesting way of doing that. Obviously, payroll is one of the biggest you know, maybe after property tax, one of the biggest line items in your expenses and you really want to keep it down. So if you use technologies to make sure that, for instance, if you have, you know, basically to make sure that you don't need an army of property managers to oversee the property, you can automate, you know, the, the tours, especially with COVID right now, we see a lot of, you know, virtual tours and it should have been there to begin with. It's a lot easier for someone to watch it, you know, see a property remotely and then decide if they want to lease it or to come and see it in person. And that really cuts the need to have a full team. I also heard, I think it was Lincoln Property Group, pretty big group, property managers. And they said, we're revisiting our assumption that we need two leasing officers to operate a hundred unit, you know, two per hundred units. Because right now we see that we can operate them with a much smaller team. And so, you know, that big part of basically improving the operations. Another part, you know, basically when I take a property, I go over line by line and I actually do it beforehand. And I say, okay, let's look at payroll. How many people are employed? How many do we really need? And what technologies we can use to lower that cost? Let's look at utilities. What can we implement a green program and cut the costs? Can we do something, maybe improve the the rubs, which is basically the system that basically collects the utility share of each unit based on the size and the number of people that are living in that unit. Maybe we can implement it if it's not there and charge more, recover more of the utilities. And maybe it's 65% and we can push it to 85%. So that's a big part of you know going line by line and seeing what we can do to cut costs. And the other part is, okay, what can we do to increase the income? And that's also something we go, you know, that's part of the business plan. A big part of it is obviously value add, renovate the units, make the exterior look nicer if it needs a little bit touch and, and love, and make sure that we can justify 15 to 20% rent increases. So that's one part of it. Another fun part is walk around the property and say, okay, we can actually implement 
you know, reserve parking, or we can bring Amazon lockers and charge more money. Think of creative ways of boosting income. How has your acquisition strategy changed with COVID breaking out? Well, that's a very good question. At first, I would say for the first 45 days, we basically took some time to digest. We were on pause mode and we said, let's see how are other properties, how are they operating? What's the collections? How bad debt is looking? What's the vacancies? And based on that, we'll know how the markets behave. And we actually did pretty well. Our collections were anywhere through, I would say, starting April, we were at 99 to 95% collections every month. And so we saw that actually people are paying their rents. Vacancies are pretty much the same. People don't really leave at this point. And after a month and a half, two months, we said, okay, we understand what's happening in the market. We see what's going on with other properties and with our properties. And so we're still buying the same way we bought before COVID with some caveats. So right now we're more focused on the area than ever before. And, you know, if an area was even 50 or 60,000 in median household income, now we're looking at the breakdown more closely and we see, okay, if 30% is retail, retail employers, it might not be a good area after all, because they're the ones who got hurt, you know, the most by COVID. We're looking at infections by areas and there's a great website, cdata.com that can give you, you know, if you put the zip code, it will give you the rates of infections across the U.S. so you can see how infected the area is. And of course, we're adjusting our underwriting accordingly because we're very conservative and want to make sure, you know, obviously we don't, we, we're buying the same properties, but we don't look at them the same way. And we make some changes to the way we, we view properties and, and opportunities. Makes sense. Makes sense. And, you know, uh, one thing, and I and know, Ellie, we're going a little bit off the beaten path here, but when it comes to COVID and are you, a lot of people are out there speculating whether or not we're going to see rent increases continue despite COVID into the future. There's a lot of uncertainty that is going on. Uh, how are you taking that into account with your underwriting? Are you still underwriting rent increases? How are you looking at the cap rates and what do you think that's going to look like in the, in the foreseeable future? That's a very good question. So, you know, in my nature, I'm a very optimistic person, but when it comes to underwriting, I'm pretty pessimistic and conservative. So the changes we've made was basically pushing the value add plan to start at month six to 12, depending on the area and the situation. Usually we start renovating right away. This time we basically say, okay, first year zero, maybe 1% rent increases, no renovation. Year two, okay, maybe we have 2% rent increases. Maybe we're going to do a small portion of, you know, of renovations. And we didn't do that before. And now, even though we're going to underwrite it this way, we're actually going to try and do renovations from day one. And this is a bit of a change from what we've been doing so far. So, so far, pre-COVID, we would, every time someone left, you know, a unit, we would come in, renovate the unit and try to lease it. Sometimes even while we're working on it. Now we do something called renovation on demand. So while other sponsors and investors just pause the renovations altogether because, you know, you don't want to, you know, we're fighting for every, every tenant and it's easier to bring someone for a lower price um, at a lower rent. I said, why not let the tenants decide? And we basically show them two units, a renovated one and a non-renovated one, which we called classic. And we say, here's the price, here's the rent for this one, and here's the rent for that one. 
you choose. And surprisingly, about 70% of new leases starting April actually wanted the renovated unit. And once they say, I want the renovated unit, then we go in and we renovate it. And it takes us about a week and a half to complete because we're very quick. Again, we're very lean. And during COVID, we were actually able to get 10 to 29% rent increases, which was pretty amazing. I didn't think it would be that good. So we're going to still try and do renovation on demand on every new deal we're going to purchase from now on, which basically once a tenant says I want it, then we spend the capital, we renovate it and we continue. This is the first time I've ever heard of something like that. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. I'm like, I'm like sitting here going like, why don't people do that anyway? (laughs) I I know it's a very model homes, right? Yeah. Yeah, It's like, it's like, yeah, walk through the model home and you want us to build you one on the cul-de-sac. It's kind of like the same concept here. Hey, here's our model rehab unit that you can get for, $1,300, or you can live in the $600 a month non-rehab unit. Which one do you want? And exactly, I think think it's definitely great during COVID, but man, that's so cool. That's such a good idea. I've never heard that before. Very simple. Mm -hmm. I just have a quick question on this. I just have to ask it. So like, you know, when you, when it comes down to the operations of this team, so do you have like a set model? Like this is how we're going to build out the home. We know that every, well, every, the unit rather, every single unit is going to be renovated to this extent, and then you just kind of have like a renovation team go in and just kind of build each of those out. Like, is that how that works? How do you turn it in a week and a half? Yeah. So we do a lot of work up front. Before we buy a property, my team actually calls all the other comps and we're asking how much you're renting each unit type and if you have renovated units and what the scope. So first of all, we get an idea. Some areas don't want stainless steel appliances. Some areas really like it. And we kind of understand the scope. And if the property we buy already have some renovation, sometimes they'll renovate 5, 10, 20% of the property and they're, they're getting premiums. So that's also going to be a good idea of kind of to assess what's the scope. After we say, okay, here's the scope. You know, we want stainless steel appliances, you know, vinyl flooring, which is a lot cheaper than plank flooring. We're going to, you know, two-tone paint, whatever it is, we create the scope. During due diligence, which we have about 30 days to do due diligence, sometimes more, we're working with a property management company and they are working with contractors. So we send a bunch of contractors to walk every unit type and they come back with quotes. And then we choose the best ones, not necessarily the cheapest ones, but the best value for money. And we create a team. So we know who's doing the flooring, who's doing the paint, who's doing, and some things we can do, you know, in-house. And when they're doing the due diligence, they take measurements per unit type. So they know when you have a certain unit that is becoming available, you know, okay, this goes to, this is a certain package. They're going to order the package exactly to the measurements of that unit. And that's how they can come in really quick because they've already measured everything. They just order that specific package from all the different vendors based on the size and the layout. And then they just get in and out pretty quick, you know, seven to 10 days. That's so systematic. How long did it take you to set something like that up? Um, during the 30-day due diligence, that's usually what it takes. And because we're working with a third-party property management company, they know all the vendors in the area that they're using for other properties. So I don't need to go and start vetting vendors. I already have someone who has those relationships. And, you know, I'm sitting in California. My properties are in Georgia, in Texas, in Florida. I can't 
oversee the projects anyways, and the third-party company is, being, is getting paid to manage the relationships with them and actually oversee the projects. I want to go back to the renovation on demand because I just think this is a fascinating concept. So yeah. what if you buy a 100-unit property and through the course of like two years, half the tenants have wanted it to be renovated and the other half don't. Does that hurt your exit strategy or valuation at the end of the day? When would you not use this renovation on demand methodology? So it depends on how, you know, what's the occupancy and how strong the market is. It definitely hurts your exit because if you projected on a normal day pre-COVID that you're going to complete renovations in 18 to 24 months, and now you've done only half, that means that your NOI is lower than you predicted. Now, if you project a certain NOI, that impacts the price because, you know, you have cap rates that you cannot control. You can control the NOI and that dictates the price. So if you had two identical properties, one of them, I basically completed a renovation plan in 24 months. Everything is good and we're pushing rents to the NOI that we've projected versus the other property that I only got, you know, 75% of the income I thought, the NOI is lower, then I'm going to get paid less. And so that definitely impacts the exit. However, I can tell you that we have properties now that are close to 100% occupancy and the decision is, okay, now we can choose. We don't have anything available in the next two months. So once something is available, yes, we can renovate it right away because the demand is so high that I'm certain I can find someone. So that one would probably not be a good candidate for renovation on demand. But even those who are not strong enough to renovate the entire you know, vacant units in today's market, we're still going to be in a better position than competitors that are just paused renovation. So their NOI is going to be lower when they want to exit. I think it's the best we can do in today's environment. And we're also trying to compensate for the loss in income by thinking outside of the box and saying, okay, maybe now when people are working from home, we can convert a part of the clubhouse and make it kind of a WeWork station and charge people outside that are not our tenants you know, a certain fee, 50, maybe $100 a month, and we can make up for that lost revenue that way, or we can increase the fees that we're charging. Normally, we don't get a pushback on the fees. So when you raise it by, instead of $200 application fee to 220 to 50, you can make up for the loss in revenue. So you can keep your NOI as close as you can to your projected NOI. So it sounds like you you definitely have to pay attention to demand because if there's a ton of demand for a certain unit type, you might just go ahead and renovate the entire thing. But in markets where the demand has either decreased or it's just not as strong, that's when you're looking to do this renovation on demand and you know you can live in the, the other unit, the lower price unit, or we can renovate it and you can live in this higher price unit. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And um, my my last question on this topic if you are doing a renovation on demand, do you have to hold the property longer to achieve the same IRR that you would normally achieve if you just renovated the entire thing over like a five-year hold? And I guess that 
is kind of, maybe that's an unfair question because it's COVID now and <laughs> all those people that were doing the renovations, they're now holding longer too. Um, mm-hmm. In a normal environment, the renovation on demand, yeah. do, you, do you have to hold it longer to achieve the same IRR? Um, not necessarily because the longer you hold the property, the lower is the IRR, generally speaking. But if you can hold on to it for another six months or a year and get you know, a much higher price when you sell the property, it might compensate for the lower IRR and you can actually get, you know, the same or even higher IRR. The thing that would be impacted, I would say, is the ROI for the renovation. Because if you put $5,000 in a unit and you get $200, you know, I think our highest premiums during COVID was $220, which is, you know, pretty good. If you got $220 after you invested $5,000, then your ROI is being impacted if you sell it after you know six months or a year. So usually when you're getting ready to sell a property, it doesn't really make sense to some extent to keep renovating because you're spending money, but the ROI on that specific unit is not going to be very impressive because you haven't covered the cost because you need to slowly wait for every premium to hit every month. But on the other hand, you have higher NOI in that, you know, you can get that lost revenue, the lost ROI as an IRR of the property if you actually are able to sell it at a higher price because the NOI is there. So my inclination would be to focus on the IRR and actually continue with renovations so you can basically have a higher NOI because that can be translated into millions of dollars. So, you know, who cares if you only made $2,500 back instead of, you know, 5000 in a short period of time, if you actually made an additional half a million or a million dollars because your NOI is actually higher. So I, I'm always looking at, you know, it's kind of a balancing act between the two. And you also have to remember that sometimes you want to leave some meat on the bone. So maybe you're not going to want to renovate the entire property because you're going to market it as a value-add deal. And then the buyers are going to say, okay, I can complete the renovations. They did half, you know, half the units are renovated. We're going to complete the other half. And the price they're going to be offering is going to be based on the performance of what they're projecting their year one income is going to be. You can also renovate the entire property and basically still market it as a value-add. If you say, hey, we renovated to a very basic level. You can take that renovation and push it even further. You can, instead of resurfacing countertops, you can bring granite. Instead of black appliances, you can bring silver, you know, stainless steel appliances. And you can increase the premiums. They were getting, you know, $200 premiums. You can get another $75 or $100. So it depends on how also you're basically marketing the deal to future buyers. You have to take into account the exit strategy when you're also putting yeah. kind of putting together this entire plan because it, to a buyer, I'll just use a personal example. So we were doing a syndication not too long ago, me and a group of other people, and we were looking for deals. And we had a few deals that were sent to us that were post value, like post renovation. It was already done. All the work was already done. It was mm-hmm. pretty much like, here's the cash flow property. And we turned a lot of those down. I turned all of them down because we wanted the value add component. So I guess that's important to take into consideration who your end buyer will be as you're kind of exiting. One thing I kind of just want to go back to, I wanted to go back to really quick 
was the part where you said hey, your property managers have all the relationships. They have the relationships with the contractors. When you are dealing with the property manager, how much time do you have to put in to make sure that uh, your value add plan is being executed? Are you just like overseeing the property managers or do you actually have to go down and actually like oversee like the contractors at that point? Yeah, I'm a very hands-on owner and operator. And so I visit properties pretty frequently, less so during COVID because it's uh, really, it you know, boils down to my life versus the performance. And we've been performing above projections even during COVID. So I feel fine. If my properties were struggling, I would in a heartbeat hop on a plane. When we take over, we do have, usually I like to stay between three and five days in the property, meet the team talk, you know, in more specific about, you know, about the value add plan and and the business plan in general. I personally do not, I don't meet with the different vendors. I do oversee things from here. And when I fly over there, I walk the renovated units and I make sure, and I also take, you know, I'm making sure that I get pictures. I review all the reports, you know, about how, you know, how much each item cost and I approve everything, approve all the budget. And for me, the best thing to do would be to manage the managers. That's where we excel and not so much to really interact with each contractor because there's so many of them. And that's why we pay our property managers. So we can think strategically, you know, how we can push income. And there are you know, the go-to, the boots on the ground, those with the actual, you know, operational expertise. And we're basically reviewing the financials, creating a plan, you know, making sure if we want them to focus on a certain area to cut costs, then we do it with them together. But we don't, I personally don't meet with the person who's resurfacing the countertops. This is not where my value is. My value is to look at the bigger picture and see how I can improve the operations, how I can push NOI. And it's, you know, my, my time is better used than, you know, meeting with the vendors. I 100% understand where you're coming from on this. I was trying to tell some people about how almost seamless this could be when you're doing these larger value-added projects. You're kind of, so kind of what yeah. it sounds like you do is you go down, you meet with the property management team, you stay down there four or five days initially on the project. You kind of lay out your value-add strategy. I guess making sure that the property management team understands what your vision is and how you want it to be executed. And then you kind of fly back home, you do your thing, you manage the property managers. Then later on, when you go visit the property at some later time, now you're actually going to walk some of the units that are renovated to verify Mm -hmm. the fact that they've actually been renovated to your standards. That's exactly right. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So we went down this path a little bit, got to get into, uh, have a few more questions left here we have to get to. And, uh, you know, how do you view coaching and education and uh, how has that helped you change your career path over time? Interesting question. So for me, education was the way out of, you know, of my hum- very, very humble beginning. And I'm a huge believer in education, especially when you're dealing with someone else's, you know, funds and, and savings. I personally, I got a mentor when I started and I also have a mentoring program called Ready to Scale. And I'm teaching people who want to become syndicators to do what I do. And I think, you know, can you do it without coaching? Definitely. I mean, it's in, you know, coaching, the good coaching programs are not cheap. But I think, you know, for me, it changed, coaching changed my life because I scaled so quickly and whatever I paid for my coach, I made in no time and I made so much more. And it's, you know, for me, I'm thinking, okay, I can do it 
on my own, but I'm go- I, I would go, it would take me longer and I would probably going to make costly mistakes. And it's my reputation on a, I wanted someone to show me the way to brainstorm with about ways to increase revenues, to, you know, speak with investors and, it was just worth it. I mean, if you think about it, people go to college and they, they spend sometimes 100K. Those programs are nothing near, you know, the, this cost. And you can really create substantial wealth and be very successful if you do syndication and you do it right. So for me, it was a no-brainer having coaching. And, you know, now I don't have a multifamily coaching. You know, we've, I've, I'm experienced enough, but I do have a business coach. And, you know, speaking with my coach about branding, about, um, you know, positioning the or repositioning the company in terms of marketing. So there's always someone that helps me take my business to the next level. I never want to be the smartest person in the room. If I am, then I've failed. I always like to surround myself, you know, with experienced people, with people who can help push my business and increase the profitability of my assets. And I just enjoy, I enjoy it because I also learn a lot from them. And every time I leave a meeting, I feel like I just got a little bit, you know, smarter than I was an hour ago. And that's how you grow. And that's how you really become successful. Couldn't agree more. Look, you know, I always, back in my earlier 20s, I was a big disbeliever. I don't know what the word is for it uh, off the top of my head, that I couldn't, in coaching and all that, you don't need it. You just paid for college, why to do it? But now I started to realize, hey, look, if you want to go from A to Z really fast, there's a path to A to Z. And there's people out there who understand that path to A to Z. They've traveled from A to Z before. And if you hire the right coach, the right mentor, they can help you get from A to Z much quicker than if you were trying to navigate that path for yourself. Um, so I think exactly. it's just, if, you, if you're really serious about doing this, and to your point, you know, Ellie, if you're going to have other people's money involved, you might as well get a coach and cut through the, the obstacles and just get there much quicker. And we, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it, but we talk about this exact topic on a new podcast that Tom and I recently launched called The Staying Power Podcast. Mm-hmm. And I actually interview my business coach, and he runs a very large title company out on the West Coast. We interviewed him on episode 12, was it 12? Yeah, it was the last episode, I think. Yeah, it yeah. was episode 12. Yeah. Coach Jeff. Yeah, it was an incredible interview. But yeah, I uh, love the, uh, the coaching. And, um, and just I, I think that also it just speaks to understanding that you have weaknesses and you have blind spots. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really what the coaching has done for me. It just helps you realize that, hey, people have gone through stuff before that you're going through now. They can help you see those blind spots. They can help you navigate through it. Absolutely. And, you know, we have to ask, we are in the real estate CPA podcast and accounting and tax podcast. So real estate, you know, people love it for financial freedom, cash flow, forced appreciation. All these things are terrific. But there's also another reason why people love real estate and it's the tax strategies behind it and what it can do for you from a tax perspective. So I guess a question to you is, what are your favorite tax strategies that you use in your real estate investments? Absolutely. So especially because we're focused on value add, we love cost seg you know, cost segregation. And probably, you know, CPAs are probably aware of, you know, that strategy. And it's beautiful. It's basically taking the depreciation and it's kind of depreciation on steroids. You know, you, you can enjoy from the first year of ownership, you know, enjoy the maximum depreciation that you can have. And especially when it comes to value add, um, and we also add a lot of expenses. So, Coupled with the cost segregation, 
we maximize the amount of tax benefits that our investors can get. So I'll give you an example. We had a deal that we closed in October of 2019. And within six months, we complete cost segregation study on every property. Basically, you break down each element of the property instead of 27 and a half years of depreciation, you say, hey, the floor depreciates much faster. I'm not sure what, maybe it's 15 or 12 years, the windows are seven or 20 years, whatever it is. And that way you can capture the depreciation much faster and you can do it, you know, one year, the year one bonus. So you can basically do everything during the first year. And the property that we purchased, you know, let's say that was mid-October, within less than six months, an investor, for instance, who invested $100,000 had a loss of $75,000. It was seventy-four, five, or $700,000. And we did not lose money on this deal. We basically had a projection on the cash on cash, and we've hit our projections actually you know, a little bit over that. But on paper, on the K-1, there was a loss because of the expenses because of the cost segregation. So 75% of the initial investment was already, you know, back to investor as in a form of loss. So obviously you can, you know, deduct it against your other passive income, unless your profession is in real estate and you're doing syndications and that way you can, but it's a really nice tool and really nice strategy and whatever you're not using during the first year, you can roll it to the next year. And mostly our investors pay zero to very little tax on each dollar they make on our deals with the exception of capital gains when you sell the property and then you can choose 1031 exchange to roll it into another syndication and defer the tax and keep doing it you know indefinitely really good stuff there so for everybody listening a cost segregation study is the practice of essentially reallocating value out of the 27 and a half year depreciation schedule and allocating it to five, seven, and 15-year schedules. And that's just based on the personal property that's identified during a cost seg study or the land improvements that are identified during a cost seg study. And the value of this is, you know, on, on multifamily property, you can allocate 25 to 30% of the purchase price to five, seven, and 15-year property. And then when you combine that with the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act 100% bonus depreciation, for any component with a useful life of less than 20 years, that means that you can immediately expense 25 to 30% of the property. And that's what Ellie was talking about, where you know you can still have positive cash flow, but from a tax perspective, you get to tell the IRS that you lost money because this is just we're we're just writing off the assets. We're not paying an additional 25 to 30%. We're just immediately taking that expense. But Ellie, you mentioned something, you know, you started talking very briefly at the end there about you know, whether investors could take the loss or not working in real estate full time. And I don't want to dive into that too deep, but I do want to ask from a sponsor perspective, because we, we work with a lot of sponsors who are going into these deals and they're asking, should I cost seg this? Will my investors get the benefit? I'm curious to hear your perspective. Do you just cost seg everything and hope that the investors can utilize the loss? Or do you talk to your investors beforehand about it? What is your approach to this? For me, cost seg is a no-brainer. We do a cost segregation on each and every property and we budget for it to begin with. It's not something we discuss with investors because our investors are passive. They're paying us to basically take care of those decisions and maximize their profits and minimize their, their tax you know, burden. So basically, we just, we just do it on every property. We might have you know, a case in the future 
that will not require it, but our assumption is that every property should go through a cost segregation. It doesn't cost that much, you know, seven to 10,000 per property. And you can allocate it. It's a sponsor's decision how much, if any, is allocated to investors and how they're doing it. We decide usually we'll either take a small portion of the cost seg benefit. And sometimes we'll just say, hey, 100% of those benefits will go to investors. And I think it's a good practice, especially in today's market. The more you can add value to investors, the better. So investors are already taking a certain chance where they're investing right now. And I do think that multifamily is the safest real estate investment, if not the safest period. And I'm not talking about gold, we'll put gold and other metals aside. Um, then I think adding that benefit of allowing all your investors to enjoy 100% of the cost segregation and the expenses, I think that's a good practice. I'm glad to hear you say that because that's, that's where we stand too. We, we basically tell the sponsors, hey, your job as a sponsor is to squeeze as much return out of this deal as you possibly can for your investors. And part of that is tax efficiency, which means that you need to cost seg every single deal. And if nine out of 10 of your LPs can't take the loss, but one can, then you've, in my mind, you've done a good job. You've done a good deed for that one person. So yeah, so we're, we're on the same page. We say cost seg every single time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, if our listeners wanted to learn more about you or Blue Lake Capital, you know, what would be the best way for them to do so? So they can basically Google Ellie Perlman and Ellie is E-L-L-I-E. And my website is ellieperlman.com. That's very simple. You can read about, you know, my story, the properties we've invested in. Um, there's a lot of good information there. And my, uh, my company's website is bluelake-capital.com. Uh, and it's, there, there are two websites. One is more focused on the deals. The other one is more focused about, you know, my story and my strategy and who I am and how I operate my properties. So either of them can give, you know, listeners a lot of information about, about me and, and the deals that we're involved with. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. I think this has been an excellent episode. It's been a while since we've talked about value-add, multifamily, and all that on the show. And I think you added a very unique take to it, especially with the on-demand. Renovation on-demand. The Uh renovation on-demand. That was definitely interesting. So we'll be releasing this shortly. And again, thank you for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.